0: You can't have liberty if you don't have a personally responsible individual, and and you can't have pure liberty if you don't have people who are mentally tough and able to compete in a free market. All of these things are intertwined.
1: Here we are on the Sunday special, and I'm excited to welcome Congressman Dan Crenshaw. We're going to be getting to all of our questions for Dan Crenshaw, his entire life story, everything you need to know about Dan Crenshaw. We'll get to in just one second. First, let's talk about the fact you're going to die. I know. It's, it's a downer. But getting life insurance can feel like assembling the world's worst jigsaw puzzle. It is confusing, it takes forever, and at the end you die. And when you're finally done, it doesn't even look cool. But if you have a mortgage, kids, anybody who depends on your income, it is a puzzle you actually need to solve. And Policy Genius can help you do it. Policy Genius is the easy way to get life insurance. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find the best policy for you. When you apply online, the advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape for you. They'll even negotiate your rate with the insurance company. No commission sales agents, no hidden fees, just helpful and personalized service. And Policy Genius doesn't just do life insurance, they also do disability insurance, home insurance, auto insurance. They're your one stop shop for financial protection. So if you find life insurance puzzling, head on over to policygenius.com. In two minutes, you can compare quotes, find the right policy, and save up to 40% doing it. Policygenius.com, it's the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Go check them out right now. They do make policy. They make life insurance and all other sorts of insurance incredibly easy. Go check them out, policygenius.com, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Well, Congressman Crenshaw, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. It's well, really cool to be here. I'm, I'm very excited to have you here, although less excited than I was before since we arm wrestled, which went very poorly for me before the show. Yeah.
0: Now you were doing really well,
1: um, and then you weren't. Sorry, that's just hey. how that happened. <laughs> I mean, <and> then, <laughs> yeah. Well, what was nice what, what, this is how I know you're a nice guy. Is for for a, a short half second, I felt a surge of hope in my yeah, heart. Yeah, I wanted to
0: give that to you. Uh, that, was, that was nice of you. Because well, you were just bragging about doing CrossFit you know, I earlier know. this week. I have 100 push-ups, no problem. I mean, these are your I'm words. Just not- I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just. These are your words. <laughs> <laughs> this hurts a little
1: bit. This hurts, I mean, I say facts don't care about your feelings, but I didn't say that they, they don't care about my feelings. Yeah, yeah the feelings yeah.
0: matter sometimes. But,
1: so we we should, we let's, let's let's <laughs> talk about let's talk about how how you got here. So. Most people who know you nationwide know you from the appearance on SNL, but I want to start before that. How did you get to mm-hmm. Congress in the first place? Because your story is, is yeah. really quite fascinating.
0: Well, the truth is I never wanted to leave the Navy. So I, I was wounded back in 2012. I was, and I think people know this story pretty well by now. I was blown up by an IED blast. I, I, uh, my interpreter was killed right in front of me, uh, and I was blinded and um, miraculously recovered through just you know, absolute miracles in the operating room. Um, I did two more deployments after that. Uh, not combat-related, but back to the Middle East and, 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 and to Korea after that and eventually the navy realized that i couldn't see very well and i had to go on to a medical retirement track um so i left in late 2016 uh, uh went to harvard i know you i think you spent some time there as well you know wonderful place and uh i did my masters there uh, me and my wife actually both went in the sense that you know she can take classes with me it was it was, it was actually oh, a awesome. pretty great year um and uh i i knew first of all harvard makes everybody think they they can be in politics <laughs> and be a president especially at the kennedy school and uh and so in the back of my mind, I knew if, if I wanted to, if I if I wanted to really have an impact on all of the policy issues that I care about, not just maybe a singular policy focus, uh, that you eventually have to get into politics. But how do you do that? Okay, there's there's three things you really need. You either need to be independently wealthy, you need to have great political connections, or you just need to have a window of opportunity. And so our window of opportunity came when, when Ted Poe announced retirement. It was my home district, and we went for it. You know, I, I, just, I came home one day, I asked my wife, should we do this? She goes, Yep. <laughs> it was without hesitation, because it, it has to be a family. It has to be a family decision. And so we went for it. We tried to connect with as many people as we could. Uh, it was kind of this desperate sort of grassroots campaigning. Um, and and, it, and it, it worked out. We won the primary. And we only had a couple months. because wow. We made this decision in November. The, the primaries in Texas are, uh, are March 6th. So an early voting starts two weeks before that, mail-in ballots a whole month before that. So you really got to get ahead of the curve here. Uh, We got second place in that election by 155 votes. And uh, then we were off into a runoff and the rest is history. So what actually prompted you to get in the military in the first place?
1: We're of the same generation. We're nearly the same age. And very few people of our generation actually joined the military. I'm a good example of this. So you did something that I didn't do. So thank you for that, obviously. But what what prompted you to to get into the military? You said you wanted to be in the Navy. And you were a Navy SEAL, obviously. So what what made that happen?
0: Uh, I read a book when I was maybe eight years old uh, called Rogue Warrior. And, and, and if you talk to most SEALs, this is, this is generally their story because the only way you really make it through something like BUDS is to have wanted it your entire life. There is no choice for you once you get there. It doesn't matter how long they keep you in the Pacific Ocean. doesn't matter how long they make you run with a boat on your head or how many log, or hours of log PT you do. It just doesn't matter to you because it's just something you have to get through. Now you complain about it. You whine about it. But you just have to do it. And that's just our mentality. Uh, if, and if you didn't want that your whole life, it's really tough to have that mentality. So I, I th- most most guys I know have the same story I did. Yeah, just childhood dream, and we went for it. And what is the BUDS program like for, I mean, most of us haven't experienced it, obviously. Yeah. Well, it's just an online course. It's, really <laughs> it's, <nothing> like, <laughs> it's like Harvard, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's just like Harvard. Um, well, uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's also quite terrible. Uh, looking back on it, we have a lot of fond memories. But so it's six months long. The first two months are called, first phase and the second second phase and then third phase first phase is you're not really learning anything except how to harden yourself all right how to push yourself way past the limits you thought possible the fourth week of first phase is hell week okay so you're up for about 6 days i broke my leg my first time through i had to be recycled throughout the entire program um, you'd run about 200 miles with these, with these, uh, with calm IBS, inflatable boat systems, basically a river rafting boat. You, you, a boat crew of six takes these everywhere with you. You run about 200 miles, uh, throughout the course of just that week. Okay. You've been doing it for about a month. Uh, second phase is dive phase. You know, a lot of controlled, <laughs> what I would call controlled drowning. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, well, that's actually some of my least favorite parts of buds, uh, because they're trying to make you comfortable underwater, trying to make you comfortable in the worst situations possible at the bottom of the pool. And, um, you get through that, you go to third phase. It's land warfare phase, and uh, they make that painful and difficult for all a whole bunch of other uh, sorts of, of, of reasons. Um, and even after buds is over, you're not a SEAL yet. You have to go through what's called SEAL qualification training. Now you're really learning. You're really honing some skills. Then you get your Trident, and then you go to a team, and then you go through an entire another year or so of training with your platoons, so that you are a, you are a, uh, you are just a, a really perfect war fighting machine when you actually deploy. And it's amazing. So
1: when you decided to join Congress what were sort of the ideological goals that you had? It's interesting because I... I have an easy job. I get to talk about politics all day long. Mm-hmm. I get to be as pure as I, as I want to be. Yeah. Uh, a, a few months ago, I was supposed to speak on the Hill. I was supposed to speak actually at Georgetown and they canceled my speech because there's a big snow day. And so instead I ended up doing a kind of impromptu session with all the congressional staffers. And a couple hundred congressional staffers showed up and they were you know talking about how much they enjoyed the show. I said, well, you guys have the hard job. I feel the same thing about yeah. you. I mean, you, you, you have a rough job. Being in Congress means you have to make deals. It means you have to compromise on principle. Mm-hmm how is that shift between being yeah. the ideologue who wants to run for Congress and then actually sitting in Congress
0: so this is two questions which is which is what I ran on and then and then this this broader question of of how do we how do we maintain that balance between ideological purism and and, and practicality so uh, I, I I tried to run on things that I knew I could at least fight for in a, in a, in a, in a very real way. You know, I ran on border security, uh, I ran on the debt, things I really care about, mostly because of how old we are, right? I, and I believe this is, a, this, and also I think this is something that reaches across party lines when speaking to people our age, I've noticed that. Uh, I, I ran on the third rail of politics, you know, entitlement reforms, uh, because it's, it's going to crush our generation. It's, it, it, and, and that actually speaks to a lot of young people. So I talked about that a lot, a lot more than most politicians think they should. Um, and, 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 and actually and I was rewarded for it, you know, for, for just being honest about these things. Um, I ran on flooding issues. Now that's a unique local issue to Houston. It's not really partisan. So it doesn't really require any kind of purism, uh, there, but th- this broader question and, uh, it, like you said, and, and I think we're getting at is, is, you know, how do we deal with conservative media? How do we, how do we deal with people who, who only want you to support the president no matter what, uh, and, or, or support certain ideals no matter what, never vote for anything. Um, And and then trying to balance that into some kind of practical sense. And I think the solution for politicians is just be open about it. Just be open about why you're voting a certain way, like what pressures you had to face and to get that. And I think voters are more willing to listen than a lot of politicians realize. Um, And so, I mean, just honesty, knowing why you believe what you believe and, and knowing and knowing why you can't quite get there, being able to take that you know, win a few yards as, as opposed to a, to, to a hail mary touchdown, I, I think is important for us to do. But, uh, it, but and, and simultaneously doesn't require us to let go of those fundamental principles that drive us there in the first place. So, what do you think are the fundamental principles that drive you? What's what's your political philosophy? What's your brand of conservatism? Um, the I, I would say the things that make our our country sustainable. Right, and I, I like to put it in a very simple terms like that. So, what are the things that make a country sustainable? And, and, and give it longevity. And, and really, they're, they're the greatest ideas we've ever had. They, and, they were, and they were written down in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So these ideas of limited government and local control, right, where we have a diverse set of opinions and preferences across this country. And the only way to maintain that without it boiling over is, is to give people local control. Okay, that's a very conservative answer. That's basically what I'm talking about is federalism, right? But I like to talk about these things in ways that people understand, because if you just say federalism and limited government, a lot of the liberals just turn off right? That's just a conservative talking point. I don't want to hear it. Okay. So we have to boil this stuff down a little bit better than I think we, we normally do. Um, individual freedom and liberty, personal responsibility. So these kind of cultural values that, that I think are important to keep a society again together. Because if, if, if people don't believe in personal responsibility, if you, if, you, if, you are, if you are more inclined to believe in victimhood as opposed to personal responsibility, well, well, think about if everybody did that. And this is what I try to explain to people. What if, what if everyone thought that way? How long would we really last if no one takes responsibility? If, if at least your first choice isn't, you have to take care of this. And then maybe it's your family. And then it's your community and your church. And then it's your local government. And then it's your state. And then it's the federal government. You know, try to help people understand that sort of line of reasoning and why, and why that's the most and why that's the best way to run a society. Um, you know, other, other cultural values I would actually throw out there are uh, the mental toughness. So a sense of grit, a, a sense of ability to uh, this kind of this American pioneer spirit that that I think we're losing, and and you know this kind of speaks to my whole uh, history and an outrage culture of which I was which I was uh, a part in the SNL skit and, and how that all turned out, and it was what what I was glad to be able to do was 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 just rebuff outrage culture, um, this idea that you that you have to be offended, that aggrieved victim status is the is the greatest thing you can accomplish, uh, and and, and and pointing out that that's just not a healthy place for us to go. Um, you know, other, other cultural values I think are important. You know, just basic notions f- of liberty. Um, and, and, and also how, how these things are interconnected. You can't have liberty if you don't have a personally responsible individual, right? And, and you can't have pure liberty if you don't have people who are mentally tough and able to compete in a free market. All of these things are intertwined. So, you know, t- to answer your question um, <laughs> in, in a long-winded way, it's, you got to start with the cultural aspects because culture you know as you as you always say politics is downstream of culture and the policy is downstream of politics so you' got to start with the culture then you can get to the politics then we can win and then we can actually put in the policy that reflects those cultural values that, that 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 give our society this this longevity that we need so let's talk about the culture for a second because as I said at the very top the way that most
1: folks know you is because of the SNL situation. So for folks who may have missed that story and for folks who may not have seen it unfold, maybe you can tell us what that was like from your
0: perspective. Yeah, I mean, I woke up Sunday and all my friends are texting me. (laughs) They're saying, hey, you made it. you're, You're on SNL. It's a great job there. Okay. Uh, and, and then we see it, you know. And it, it, it doesn't make me mad right away. That's just—I'm from the Seal Teams. We, we have a very different sense of humor. Okay, <laughs> we're pretty thick-skinned. Uh, For um, folks who
1: missed it, Pete Davidson, who is one yep. of the stars of SNL, made a joke about your eye patch and suggested mm-hmm. that you were a pirate or that you were some sort of James Bond villain
0: or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> and it was, it, the wor- and that was fine. That wasn't even—you know—his his comments weren't that bad. It was—it was—it was the part that maybe was scripted, maybe not. Uh, and he just said, "Oh, lost it in war, or whatever." You know, it was a, it was an extremely dismissive thing, um, where every but and that that's what made America angry. It kind of brought us together for a little <laughs> bit, and uh, you know, SNL was taking a lot of uh, fire for that, and um, they they came around to emailing me an apology, and then and then eventually. Um, uh, the, the the producers called me and said, Hey, why don't we have you on this weekend? You can say whatever you want. I said, Well, this weekend's Veterans Day weekend. I can't really go on. I've got a lot of events already planned. They said, No, it has to be Veterans Day weekend for exactly the reasons of you know because we insulted veterans. And I said, That's a good point. Um, so let's make it happen and and let's make this a fun, cool thing to do. And uh, and I think we did. We had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, it really is
1: pretty fantastic. For folks who haven't seen the segment, you should go on YouTube and you should check it out. Basically, you did something that was unique. First of all. Your, your comedy bit was, was hilarious. I mean, yeah. you, oh, the, I the, the, <laughs> <laughs> Dan goes after uh, the, the Pete Davidson and makes fun of his appearance. And, and the whole point is obviously that we can make jokes. And that was what was unique. It was unique moments. I, I, I said online, I thought it was maybe the most uplifting moment in American politics I'd seen in a decade because it was you sitting next to him and actually empathizing with him and saying, listen, we can get beyond the outrage culture mm-hmm. it Was something that I thought was pretty unique.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's so important that we're able to joke with each other again. Uh, I think we've really lost that. Y- you can just you can look in the news almost every single day and find an example of this, uh, of, of where we're just we're so ready to to pounce, right? Republicans pounce, right? So, <laughs> uh, but it's not, you know, it, 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 and we've got to be careful too, not to be, not to be overly sensitive. And, I, and for the most part, I think we're better about that. Uh, but it doesn't mean we're perfect, and, and we don't want to be hypocrites either on on this particular issue. Um, but it's it's. It's really a shame. I'm not sure how to fix it, except for to just not be part of the problem, uh, and to you know encourage a little lightheartedness every every once in a while. Uh, but I mean, geez, you saw my joke about the Super Bowl. I'm like that, just that just went. It went it's like I was like, really, this is what triggers people. <laughs> it, it's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, anything <laughs> will
1: anything will trigger anybody. In a second, I'm going to ask you how you think conservatives can do better in the culture wars and how you actually define the culture wars as opposed to the political wars. But first, when the founders crafted the Constitution, the first thing they did was to make sacred the rights of the individual to share their ideas without limitation by their government. The second right they enumerated was the right of the population to protect that speech and their own persons with force. You know how strongly I believe in these principles. I'm a gun owner. Owning a rifle is an awesome. Some responsibility. Building rifles is no different. Bravo Company Manufacturing was started in a garage by a Marine vet more than two decades ago to build a professional grade product that meets combat standards. BCM believes the same level of protection should be provided to every American, regardless of whether they're a private citizen or a professional. BCM is not a sporting arms company. They design, engineer, and manufacture life saving equipment, and they assume every rifle leaving their shop will will be used in a life or death situation by a responsible citizen, a law enforcement officer, or a soldier overseas. Every component of a BCM rifle is hand assembled and tested by Americans to a life-saving standard. BCM feels moral responsibility as Americans to provide tools that will not fail the user when it's not just a paper target. BCM works with leading instructors in marksmanship from top levels of America's special ops forces, from Marine Corps force reconnaissance to US special ops forces, who can teach the skills necessary to defend yourself, your family, or others. To learn more about Bravo Company Manufacturing, head on over to Bravo Company, MFG.com. That's Bravo Company, MFG.com. Go check them out right now. If you need even more information, you can check them out at youtube.com slash bravocompanyusa. So we're talking about the culture wars. And again, I said at the time, I, I've Told members of the press that I think one of the reasons that you've become such a new fresh face of the Republican Party, so fresh, so face, is that you've actually <laughs> engaged positively and, and in a, an effective way in in the culture wars. How do you define the culture wars, and why do you think so many conservatives, particularly yeah. in politics, seem to miss the importance of of the culture
0: wars generally? Uh, uh, two very important questions there. So, how do we define the culture? There's different. There's just some, there's different battle lines drawn on the culture wars. So. Uh, I, I think examples are the best way to talk about the culture wars. Um, one example had occurred here in California recently: um, there was a lady. She, I think she worked for Santa Barbara Community College. She was she was upset that they no longer did the Pledge of Allegiance before board meetings, or something along those lines. I, I think I'm getting the story right. And um, as she was testifying her story, she, you know, what? she got up and did the Pledge of Allegiance, and she was she was met with the most ferocious ferocious leftist attacks and they were they were there in the room just screaming at her shouting her down and she's she's in tears as she's giving the pledge of allegiance that that is a fundamental part of the culture war this idea that either either you love your country and we all agree on that or you truly despise your country you have not you have contempt for it that that's that's a I think that's the most important part of the culture war this idea of whether we love our country or not that's what worries me Uh, what I what I try to ask liberals is I mean you know don't you think we're on your, conservatives, don't you think we conservatives are on your side on this? Don't we all love our country? And don't you realize that you're being sucked in by the leftists here? I mean, the, like, as you always point out, there's, a, there's quite a difference between leftism and liberalism. Um, my worry is that liberalism opens the gates to leftism, right, and it, because it's not bad to be concerned about income, income inequality. It's not bad to care about the poor. It's not bad to care about equal rights and, and justice and all of these things. That's not a, that's not a fundamentally bad thing to do. Um, but, but I, what I, what I want liberals to understand is that it does give way to these things. It does give way eventually, um, if given free reign to leftism, the kind of things we see there in the culture war, you know, I think other aspects of the culture war, um, you know, I think you see it on campus all the time, you know, wh- whether free speech is a, is a fundamental right or not. Um, you know, the, the social justice movement as a whole and, and those kind of battles, I think, I think that, I think that. That is more of a culture war issue. Sometimes less of a policy issue. Now, it does manifest in policy sometimes, but the, the the other aspect of your question is is how do politicians fight it? Um, and and I do think it's important for us to do that because it's what people listen to. And again, politics is downstream of culture. You can't win in politics until you've won the culture war. So you have to you have to engage on that front. Uh, you know you, you you have to engage on. On, on whether it's right to appreciate the national anthem or not. Because that, again, the, this idea of whether we should con- have contempt for our country or not is, is, an, important, is an important part of our culture. It's, it's the one thing that brings us together. We have ideals that bring us together. We don't have skin color. We don't have religion. Uh, you know, it, even, even geography isn't a great thing to bring a people together. You need ideas. You need fundamental values. And uh, I, I, I worry greatly that those are being undermined. And I worry greatly that politicians aren't fighting on those, on those fronts enough uh, so that's the benefit of going on SNL. That's the benefit of of, of doing the media that we that we do, uh, sharing yourself a little bit more with people on social media. Uh, I don't think politicians do enough of that. I think they're a little too careful. Uh, we don't need to be so careful. All right, let's let share yourself with the people, connect with people, let them know you're human, uh, let them know the things you like to talk about that may be outside of politics. Uh, that that would go a long
1: way. But well, I think one of the reasons the SNL moment went so viral, and I think it was hailed by people on all sides is... I think the left was was shocked that a Republican was a human being, and this this is sort of the problem. When, when you talk about liberalism sliding into leftism, all the things that liberals talk about, maybe with the exception of income inequality, because I think the conservatives are more concerned about their be, the the growth of poverty than they are about right. some people being rich and some people being income poor. But, all the, the but all the other exactly, but all the other issues that you talk about, those are issues where conservatives are also deeply engaged, and the way that liberals slide from being a liberal into a leftist is by casting aspersions at people on the other side and suggesting we don't care about the same things. You're bad, you're vile, you're terrible. And so when you are on SNL and suddenly you are a nice guy and not only that, you were being extraordinarily generous with somebody who had personally <laughs> insulted you and then made a, an offhand n- nasty remark about military mm-hmm. service. I think that's why so many people it was it was dragging leftists back from leftism and toward and toward liberalism, yeah. the idea that we all still have some things in common.
0: yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Uh, yeah, I saw this trending on Twitter the other day this, i'm I'm the radical left. you know and then and then they'll have this explanation for what that means. And it's usually along the lines of you know, because I care about the environment and I want everybody to have access to health care. was like, you, do you think you're the only ones who want those things? You know, don't demonize us in this terrible way. Do you really think that the right doesn't believe that? I mean, and, and I don't know if it's if it's intellectual dishonesty or if they've just really have never spoken to a conservative. Oftentimes, they've just never spoken to a conservative. Uh, and I saw that at Harvard quite a bit. Uh, like, where you're just I mean, they've never seen one. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really funny. Uh, and, they, and they truly don't know what we believe. Uh, I, I've watched them try to make arguments that they think that we'll like. You know, uh, the, uh, the carbon dividend is a great one, a great example. So this, this idea that that, uh, that you, sh- you can have a carbon tax, but you're going to distribute it. So the government's not making money, therefore it's conservative. I'm like, that's not what conservatism is. You want to create a whole new bureaucracy to redistribute money? how is that efficient that's not that's not good limited government and i and i would tell these professors this i'm like you do realize that you're not making the right arguments towards conservatives this is not the way to win our hearts i'm just just letting you they really don't know what we think they've never bothered to study it which is strange because i think there's a lot of history um and framework to conservatism what worries me about progressivism is it's progress at any cost. So it, it can go anywhere. There's no limits to this. There's there's no way to box that in. Again, that's why good-natured, well-intentioned liberalism eventually leads to what, what is more dangerous, which is progressivism. You know, the, the Wilsonian progressivism where they, they openly have contempt for the Constitution. That worries me. There is no limit to that. It is power at all costs to do good things. Well, who decides good things? Well, they do. Whatever that might mean at the moment. And that changes over time. And we've seen... Um, We've seen the, ex- I, think, I think your average voter will say, hey, both sides have just moved to the extreme. Maybe that's true. And it is true as far as willingness to cooperate, willingness to vote with the other side. And you can measure these things, okay? So that, that is true. Both sides have moved to extremes on that. But then we have the question, okay, who has really moved to the extreme on policy, Conservatives haven't really, okay? Now, we, you know, there's, there's, the, the Trump administration is a little different, of course, uh, especially with trade policy. But for the most part, conservatives still believe what we believed decades ago. Um, the left hasn't, or the left has changed quite a bit. Uh, the border debate is a, is a big example of that, right? Like, you know, again, we, we, we don't have to rehash all the speeches made by Chuck Schumer and others, you know, being so strong on border security and then doing a 180 now. Um, I think they've gone, they've gone more radically left on abortion issues. They've gone way more radically left on economic issues. You know, Socialism is no longer a dirty word. Why is that? Well, because progressivism has, progressivism has no limits. And that's a scary thing. That's what I want people to understand, that when they're voting, they're voting based on a governing philosophy. That's what you should be voting for. You know, Vote for issues if they're really important to you, but please vote on a governing philosophy. And, and I think conservatism is the right governing philosophy. It's, it's what gave us everything we have. We should have some gratitude for that. Uh, Progressivism is something you don't know where it's going, and that that should scare us. So you have to deal with Democrats, I'm sure, much more now in Congress
1: than you had to do in your home district. Uh, So now you're in Congress, you're having to deal with Democrats. And what I've heard from members of Congress, members of the Senate, uh, is a couple of different stories. One is that the Democrats are true believers in this wild progressive agenda that they actually believe what it is that Mm -hmm. they're saying. And then I hear sometimes that no Democrats actually behind closed doors know that what they're saying is is pretty wild and they're catering to a base and if you actually get them off the record then they're quite willing to be moderate it's just that once they get a camera on them all of a sudden they move to the radical left in order to please their base which have you found to be more true or does it sort of depend on the on the person it depends
0: on the person uh that i think i think that's i think both are true it it does depend on the person um what what i find uh, there's a couple things i find actually being behind the scenes um on the border debate specifically, they agreed with us. A lot of them agreed with us, but just would never vote for us. That was extremely frustrating. I found that to be a deeply dishonest way to govern. Um, and I'm still frustrated about it. And I'll continue to fight those battles on Homeland Security Committee. So uh, the border is a pretty important thing to me. Uh, on, on the bigger issues and sort of the more, the more radical socialism, Green New Deal type issues, I have yet to talk about that kind of stuff with a, with a lot of the more moderate Democrats. What I, what I see from the more moderate ones, which is generally the ones I hang out with, uh, they more what, what their tendency is is to is to cover for the socialists, right? They'll they'll dismiss it as yeah yeah we know about all that but don't worry. Well, well, what do you mean don't worry? You know, it's I mean, this is this is really gaining traction. At a certain point, you have to recognize that. The Green New Deal has quite a few co-sponsors. Most presidential candidates want the Green New Deal. They 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 advocate for the Green New Deal. Beto is talking about tearing down walls. I mean, in El Paso, contrary to what his mayor and his residents think and say, and then he backtrack on that. I was very proud of that, by the way. I was able to that was my my doing, (laughs) (laughs) getting getting him to answer that question. it, I, I guess both are true is the answer. And I would also say that I wish people understood people actually get along better behind closed doors than you would see in public. And, you know, the more we can showcase that as members of Congress, I think the better for the American people. So specifically on
1: the border issue, since you mentioned it a couple of times, do you think that there really is a national emergency at the border or is it just a slow rolling problem at the border? How should Americans yeah. view it since you're obviously much more fluent with those issues?
0: It's, you know, now, now we're defining emergency very narrowly. I would say it's been an emergency for a very long time. And uh, when, you, when you have 400,000 people a year apprehended crossing the border illegally, that's a pretty enormous number. And Border Patrol indicates to me that they've maybe catch one in three. And so, you know, you can triple that number. And, and, that's, and that's the lowest in decades, because Democrats immediately come back at me, and they'll say, well, we'll, we'll do, would you agree that's the lowest in decades? Yes. Is it low? No. Okay, next question. <laughs> um, like, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, what, you know what helped lower that? Well, enforcing the border. All right, putting putting this bollard fencing where we need it, Um, and I think we should continue to do that. And uh, so, is it an emergency? Yes. Is the policy right? Yes. Is the is the is the process the president is undertaking the best one? It's not the best one. It's not ideal. Um, I think I think you can argue both ways on that. Uh, I am worried about the precedent, but maybe not as much as people should be. Okay, let me explain that a little bit. So. What the president is doing is he's appropriating money that wasn't given to him to enforce a law that exists. Okay, and the law is you can't cross the border. Okay, so so that's very different from, say, um, declaring a national emergency on gun violence and then changing gun laws. Right. Because the so the equivalent of a Democrat president doing that would essentially be appropriating more money to enforce the same laws. That's not really that bad. Uh, so, so I'm not so sure that we need to worry that much about the president. Uh, we you could also argue constitutionally speaking, the president is there to faithfully execute the laws written by Congress. All right? That's what that's literally what it says. Uh, what do the laws say? They say you're not allowed to cross the border. Again, uh, that that's arguing both sides of it. it. It's it's still it's still not a great process, and I think it's going to get bogged down in courts. Uh, and that's my that's my biggest frustration with it. It's creating a lot of political uncertainty. Probably won't work. Uh, and uh, I, I'd, I'd rather continue to fight this in Congress because I think we eventually started winning the messaging battle. I think we were losing that for a long time. Uh, I think we are l- using the wrong arguments and letting Democrats use very dishonest arguments instead of using unassailable arguments, again, like that 400,000 number, uh, using unassailable arguments and, and then making them be more honest about what they believe and what they don't believe. And uh, the, the biggest frustration with how all these negotiations went over the last few weeks was that I no longer believe the Democrats actually want border security or enforcement. And this is based on what they were asking for in those negotiations. So I'll give you some examples. Um, when, when Border Patrol is asking for $5.7 billion, they're, 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 what they're asking for is to fund their top eight priorities. And, and that but those priorities are geographic in nature. Uh, Democrats wanted to say, OK, fine, we'll fund three of them. And we're like, oh, great, one through three. No, 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 no. six through eight. Why on earth would you? Why? <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> what is? What could possibly be your reason except you want less enforcement? The other thing they did was, what uh, was they were was demanding that we that we decrease the number of detention beds. So that's a decrease in our ability to enforce. There is no other reason for that except you don't like enforcing this law. You don't like enforcing illegal immigration. You have reasons for that. I don't. It's unclear what they are, but they're not good. Uh, and and they, you know, and then and then they. Uh, there was another provision snuck in there, which which essentially makes it uh, more likely that children will be trafficked uh, based on the, the, you know, I think you've covered this before, so I don't, want, I don't need to delve into it too much more. No, I mean, it's fine. Me fo- Maybe
1: folks have not heard, but. Yeah.
0: Well, well, what this provision says is that if you're a sponsor of a child or a potential sponsor or a potential sponsor in the household, then you can't be deported by ICE. So for an uncompanied minor who has who crossed the border. Well, what does that mean in practice? What it means in practice is, is, is this. When I was down at the border, we saw 16 kids. This was just one day. Was, I was with Border Patrol. They had 16 kids who were identified who, who came with adults who were not their parents. Further questioning, they found a stash house in Houston with about 54 illegal immigrants in it. Why were there 54 people in a house? Well, because the drug cartels would not let them leave. All right, because, because they were being trafficked and because they hadn't paid their dues yet. Drug cartels have complete operational control of the southern border on the Mexico side. The Mexican government has no say in how that works. Illegal immigrants do not come across by themselves. That does not happen. They have to pay somebody. And and, and, and this is enforced violently because it's a business for them, right? They lose money if they don't allow this to be enforced. So that's what people need to understand about it. Those are the right arguments. And we can win those arguments if we say them enough and say it with honesty. Uh, Don't overstate our point. You always get slammed if you ever state your point, right? So um, that's what I try to do on the of debate.
1: So I want to ask you about the Budget Committee and your work there. Before I get to that, I, I do want to ask you about, again, it, it must be tough to be in Congress. It's a, it's a rough job. And it's a rough job because, number one, you have to deal with people you disagree with all the time who are sometimes being honest, sometimes being dishonest. And the other fact is that you get a lot of flack from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I've found myself really thinking a lot more in recent years about, as influence has grown, about how to wield that influence when it comes to members of Congress, because there is a tendency to call for people's heads if they don't do exactly what you want. And that's, I I think, unfair to a lot of politicians. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
0: Leave us alone, Ben. Um, it, it, it does happen so I haven't been in politics that long I haven't dealt with this very much but I certainly see it I see how it can work um, and there's there's really two separate movements in the conservative movement that that do this right there's so sort of the more there's the more puritan um, conservatives again people I pretty much agree with on just about everything but they don't want you to vote any other way they don't want you to make any deals they they want a touchdown they don't want you to move the ball forward a few yards that's not acceptable. Uh, That's what hurt us, by the way, I think, in the last couple of years with healthcare and with uh, and with the border issues. So that's a problem. Um, You know, you've got to let us work. And you've got to understand, too, that these politicians aren't selling out to the swamp, whatever that means. I was well, what does that mean? And nobody can tell me. Like, I I don't know what it means to sell out. Okay, the reality is, is that most members of Congress are are, are, they're catering to somebody. Yes, but it's their constituents because that's the people who vote them in. You know, so it's not as it's this 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 idea of it this being this corrupt place, that's that's just not entirely true. It's not what I've seen. I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying I haven't really seen it. The the other the other um the other element of uh of what we deal with is is this need to support the president no matter what. And again, I support the president on pretty much everything. Uh there's there's a couple of things I disagree with, and I'm very open about that. Uh we said a piece in the, in the Wall Street Journal about this, about how, ba- how much I disagree with pulling out of Syria. Uh, and I disagree with his trade policy because it's bad for my district. So that's fine. That's fine. And, and frankly, he's fine with it. He understands that. You know, it's, I, I think as, as time has gone on, too, he's going kind to of get more comfortable in the executive position. And uh, I think we can openly disagree about these things. But, uh, but there's certainly a sense, even among my voters, and they'll say, you know, we just get this sense that the, 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 the Republicans just aren't supporting the president. And I'm like, why? Why do you think that? You know, what, what did Mitch McConnell do to you? Was it, was <laughs> like, I mean, he held up the process for the Supreme Court nominees for, for you know, he got you Neil Gorsuch, he got you Brett Kavanaugh. Like, what, what did he do to you that you're so mad about? He wouldn't, he would not allow a spending bill on the floor until the president said he would sign it. I mean, what, what did, what did Mitch McConnell do that is so bad? And and I get that they don't do everything perfectly. I'll tell you, I fully agree. But but we have we we have to be a little more careful with eating our own. It's it's not exactly what you think. And and this is and this goes back to remember my cultural values of mental toughness and discipline. Part of that is is always stopping, counting to 10 and saying, is there more to this story? <laughs> is there more to the story? Can I breathe? Can I breathe and, and have the mental fortitude to say there might be more to this than I think? I want to
1: dig for a second on the issue of the swamp. So you mentioned the swamp and uh, I, I tend to agree with the idea that it's not that like Congress people are being randomly paid off by evil yeah. corporate paymasters who yeah. smoke cigars and look like me. But in any case, uh, the, that that seems to be a prevailing myth that, that everybody yeah. in Congress just wants to go to the cocktail parties. And I've never been to one of these cocktail parties. They are supposed to be unbelievable. I keep hearing about these amazing cocktail parties. Frankly, sitting with a bunch of Congress people having cocktails sounds about like the worst evening I could ever possibly yeah, have. There's No
0: fun cocktail parties, <laughs> and if there are, I haven't been to any. You know, it's just it's yeah. I mean, there's lobbyists. You get to know them, sure. Um, you're with other members of Congress, but it, there's, it's just not what people think it is. It's. I mean, it's, how does that speak to
1: campaign finance? So AOC, I know, was getting a lot of attention yeah. because she did a questioning on campaign finance, where she basically suggested that anyone who takes any sort of mm-hmm. lobbyist money uh, is in the pocket of the lobbyist. It's always seemed to me, having dealt with right. at this point, you know, probably almost a hundred members of Congress, that. What actually happens is lobbyists tend to find people who already support their agenda, and then they contribute to their campaigns because they like to see those people in Congress. But where do you come down on campaign finance?
0: Yeah. Um, well, you know, first of all, it seems like they're 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 fine with a very transparent corporate PAC money, or they're sorry, they're not fine with that, which is very transparent, but they're totally fine with Act Blue, which is extremely hard to 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 um, find the origin of, you know, and that's and so I don't I don't see how you can you 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 can. Um, balance those two ideas but they do um here, here's 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 what a corporate pack is first of all it's a bunch of people who work for a corporation who pull their money together and then donate okay and the max they can donate is five thousand dollars all right so can i be bought off with five thousand dollars the answer is no <laughs> like it's just it's very simple no um and you're absolutely right they they only come to you if they already agree with you and, and you know that we might have more detailed discussions on okay like what are we you know what issues do you guys care about can i get behind that no yes maybe probably not you know that that's it, it's a very it's a very simple conversation but the reality is is they just don't wield the power that people think they do um, they, they they bring up issues that you never would have heard of otherwise and i don't i don't fundamentally see a problem with that uh, it's it's very it's, it's this is a very strange attack on on corporations and again this this goes back to the culture wars right like do we want to punish success do we or, or, or do we? Do you believe in socialism or do you believe in the free market? All of this stuff can always be traced back to
1: the culture war. It has always puzzled me the idea that money is in complete control of American politics, and that if the NRA signs a check, it's because they bought somebody. If that were the case, don't you think the NRA would just go bribe every Democrat, and then we could get <laughs> right? That's a good point. <laughs> Or, or yeah. that the or that near all pro choice America would come bribe every right. Republican. Well, I want to get to your work on the Budget Committee. So you said you campaigned on entitlement reform. That's an amazing thing. Uh, I wonder is that ever going to happen? Because you know, I look at the situation. People love their entitlements. Two-thirds of the American budget every year constitutes entitlement spending, and it's mandatory. Uh, it is not discretionary spending. Do you ever see a future where there is a restructuring of entitlements? Or are we going to go the way of Europe, and basically we'll have an economic meltdown, and then we'll have to take austerity measures?
0: Well, uh, Medicare goes insolvent in 2026, and Social Security goes insolvent in 2034. Uh, I, I really hope we deal with it before then. Uh, Because here's what that means, you know, when Social Security, for instance, goes insolvent, that means that benefits automatically get cut. That's what happens according to current law. Well, what's instead going to happen because we're not actually going to cut benefits to seniors who are relying on those things? Well they're going to tax us. They're going to tax my generation, your generation, and uh, they're going to tax us pretty heavily. And we're going to be told that it'll be fine for a little while, then they're going to have to tax us more. Okay. This is a completely unsustainable program now. But the question is, are we going to fix it? Well, I'd like to. I'm going to keep fighting <laughs> to fix it. Uh, Democrats have no interest in fixing it. That, that, that's, that's a real problem. They, again, we fundamentally disagree on why there's a debt. And that, that's a real problem. We fundamentally disagree on the facts. And that's what I get out of these budget hearings. Um, Democrats honestly believe that history began two years ago with President Trump and history began with the tax cuts. And they will actually argue that the reason we have bad deficits is because of these tax cuts. Okay, well, let's look at the numbers on this. Without, without the tax cuts, in about 10 years, we'd have around $32 trillion in debt. With the tax cuts, we have about $33 trillion in debt. <laughs> they are, they, those are not causing the debt. I mean, it, this is real simple numerical uh, uh, some numerical evidence that we can look at to prove that. Um, but they believe it, and they'll hammer that, and they'll hammer that. And we'll say, listen, 70% of spending is, is mandatory spending. That's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the debt. Um, some other entitlement programs as well, uh, things we can't control, things we re- we refuse to vote on, and that's a real problem. I mean, that's that's the issue. Okay, how can we get to a point where we actually vote on these programs? Because the thing we fight about constantly every year, and again going back to like what we're held accountable for by these by, by conservative groups is thirty percent of the budget. That's that's you know we're, we're fighting, and, and it's worth fighting over. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what's causing our, our future $33 trillion debt. It's mandatory spending. It's, it's increasing healthcare costs. And, and it's a completely unsustainable social security system. And, I, and again, I think we can reach out to younger people our age and get them to vote Republican based on this issue. And I'll, and I'll just be very honest with them when I talk about it. I say, listen, we have to raise our retirement age. We're living longer. We have to. I shouldn't be retiring at 67. I would like to. I think that would be great. I want to live in this utopia that Drew is talking about. But it just can't happen. <laughs> so Let's actually make the hard decisions. Again, back to the culture. Like what Are we willing to have the mental fortitude and personal responsibility to make the hard decisions so that we can live in a sustainable society, a society that has longevity? That's what it always comes down to. That's connecting the policy with the culture, but you've got to get the culture right first.
1: One of the things that's been obviously disappointing to watch is the newfound embrace by the radical left and of many young people of socialism full scale. They call mm-hmm. it democratic socialism now, which is I guess a soft version of socialism where you use yeah. capitalist infrastructure and then build a bunch of socialist institutions on top of it. Yeah. Why do you think the newfound warmth yeah. for socialism in a time where capitalism has essentially cured extreme human poverty, where free markets have generated the capacity to literally buy any top, anything and have it at your door in two days, thanks, yeah. to, thanks to Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Yeah. So why do you think so many young people
0: are buying into the, the lies of, of socialism? Well, it's a, com- it's a lack of gratitude. You know? And, I, and I, kinda, I steal this idea from Jonah Goldberg in his book. And he really talks about this a lot. Um, but I think, I think it really opens up the truth here. So there's, there's a complete lack of gratitude for these principles that gave us all of these things. And again, those principles is kind of, I think, those cultural narratives, and I always hit back on these personal responsibility, this idea that liberty is good, okay, this idea of fairness where, where you get what you deserve, not that everybody gets equal stuff, okay? Um, that leads to the free market. That leads to the ability to thrive in a th- free market, and that leads to prosperity. And we have all this proof that this prosperity exists based on these principles. And yet, there's no gratitude for them, right? It, it's every generation sort of wakes up and thinks it knows so much better than the last generation. And and this one is unique because for, I think for two reasons. One, one we the, this generation was coddled a lot by the by the previous generation, like you know, no longer allowed to play on playgrounds. Told you that 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 you know, second place trophies, all that, right? There's this whole kind of change in culture. Um, and then on top of that, uh, on top of that, they have the internet. So the internet makes you more knowledgeable, but it doesn't necessarily make you smarter. And it doesn't teach you the framework in which to absorb those new ideas that you can that you have at your fingertips. So that's, a, that's an interesting combination, because it's, a, it's, it, it, it means that they are very confident um, in, in their ability to say what they want, and that their feelings matter most, and that they can kind of pick what ideas they want to use there. So I think that, what we're, that from the internet, and that results in this lack of gratitude, all right? It results in this situation where it's like, okay, the, the idea of you're walking through a forest and you see a fence. Well, why is the fence there? You know, the conservative might say, well, there might be a good reason that there's this fence here. <laughs> Maybe there's landmines on the other side, and I don't like landmines, as you, know. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know. But you so know, I think so this new generation, somebody on the left, who thinks they're smarter than everybody else, say, there's obviously, there's no reason. They said just obviously, There's no reason for this fence. I mean, we're not even gonna question it. It doesn't make any sense. Well, maybe there is, all right? And maybe we should find out, you know, and maybe we should should be a little bit more responsible in our policy making as we move forward. Do you think that unity is possible in the country at this point? Are you optimistic or
1: pessimistic about the country coming together again? Because in some ways, it seems like there's sort of moments of optimism, your SNL appearance. Mm-hmm. And then there are vast swaths of desert where people are just clubbing each other like it's Mad Max. I mean, what, what, <laughs> what do you, where, where do you stand on, on being positive or negative about the country, which feels at many points like it's coming apart?
0: Oh, I... That's a good question, and um, it, it's it's very difficult to answer. I, I I'm not overly optimistic. I'm not overly pessimistic. Um, I I I think, I think our country has seen worse before. Uh, people don't realize that a lot. Just looking at history. That that being said, that being said, it, it's it's hard to see a way out of it. And you know, I would just ask that more people stop being part of the problem. Stop looking for reasons to club, and and that that would be nice. And I have to pull myself back from that sometimes, you know. And um, the, the 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 standard I try to give myself is attack ideas. Don't don't be afraid to attack ideas, even make fun of ideas. But 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 try not to question the character of the others. Uh, that that would be a good next move, and, and something I hope we can aspire to. And as conservatives, I think we're the character, our our character is questioned in immense ways. And I would like to see a stop to that. But at the same time, we shouldn't do it to the other side. And uh, you know, we've got to refrain at those moments. But uh, I, w- I would say I would say, instead of being neutral, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I am <laughs> pessimistic. But uh, we got a lot of work to do.
1: All right. So I want to ask you about your foreign policy, about Syria and all that. First, I, I read a piece where you were talking about your thoughts on campaign finance reform and campaign finance limits. And I was wondering if you might explicate that.
0: Sure, sure. So we were talking about the, the, the corporate PAC money side um, but there's another aspect to that, which is what should the limit be and, and how arbitrary is that? And what, what I don't think a lot of people understand and a lot of people who are railing against corporate PAC money, railing against money in politics, they don't really know what that means. Well, well here's the actual reality. Somebody like me who's got no independent wealth, uh, I've, got, I, I've got no political connections and I want to get into politics. Okay, So how does that happen? Well, it doesn't happen very easily because there's something called campaign contribution limits. So you can only take a certain amount of money and it, it, it's it's not that big. Um, you can go up against somebody who can self-fund their own campaign. So in my primary, there was one candidate, and this is just one out of nine. They all had a lot of money, but one had six and a half million dollars to spend on her campaign. That's impossible to compete with. So you've created a system by over-regulation and by limiting campaign contributions. You've created a system where only the rich and the well-connected can actually compete. And again, you could this philosophy carries on. It's a broader government regulation on, on businesses and the economy at large, but it also matters in campaign finance. And, and I don't think a lot of people understand that.
1: Okay. So now I want to get to your foreign policy. So obviously your military experience is defining characteristic for you. And you've been watching the, the Trump foreign policy. I've agreed with large swaths of Trump foreign policy. There are a couple areas where I have significant disagreements. I sense that you share some of those disagreements. One of them is pulling out American troops from mm-hmm. Syria. Where are you on that and, and
0: why? Yeah, I say don't do it. Uh, at least don't do it in a, in a quick manner. Um, and, and I say it very simply to people who, who who question this, and both the right and the left questions this. Uh, and I say, listen, we go there so that they don't come here. It's really that simple. The world is a very small place. Uh, you can you can hop on a 12-hour flight, and you can be here, uh, or you can get here even faster with the movement of the internet, and you can radicalize people remotely. Okay, we saw that in Orlando, we saw that in San Bernardino, uh, we see it in Paris. Th- this happens. When you, when you give terrorists like ISIS, the, the space to operate, um, they will act on that. They, they don't, they're not satisfied with what they have there. What they really want is to take down Western civilization. And I know this because they talk about it all the time. Like we don't have to guess, you know, we don't have to guess what their intentions are. And the same with Afghanistan. Uh, American leadership matters uh, a lot more so than than, than people realize. And we, we've actually found the right balance. And this is what I tell the president. He has actually found the right balance here. Um, between, you know, m- you know, massive amounts of troops and, 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 and really ill-advised pullouts like the one that happened in 2011 under Barack Obama in Iraq. Uh, neither of those are good. What, what President Trump has is a, is a small contingent, um, uh, relatively cheap in terms of costs. And uh, it, it's the right move. It, it allows us to have eyes and ears on the ground so that we can predict future attacks. And this is our intelligence collection side of it. it. Allows us to build capacity within our partner forces, uh, whether that's the Kurds in Syria, the Syrian Democratic Forces, or in Afghanistan, uh, the, the, the Afghan government. They're not ready yet. And, and we risk those being toppled. And we risk a lot of sacrifices being made in vain. And, and I really don't want to see that. You know, not that, I, not that I care about my eye, I'm still very, you know, that's fine. But there's a lot of friends who have made the ultimate sacrifice and that's, you know, and, and and and, th- and if they could be here right now, they'd go right back, just well, like I
1: would. This is one of the, the issues that I have with how politicians generally talk about foreign policy and a way you're not talking. And that is that they just lie about the expectations of foreign policy. This idea that, well, there's going to be a, a ringing victory in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, and then yeah. we'll bring the troops home. There'll be a big ticker tape parade. That hasn't happened since World War II. And there we were fighting an actual government with uniformed soldiers. It was not a war on terrorism. Yeah. The, the The fact is that low-level conflicts like... Afghanistan or like Syria. And I mean by that—is not hundreds of thousands of troops in simultaneous combat. The, the reality is that a holding pattern may in fact be
0: the best that we can do in many of these cases. And yeah. yet no politician actually wants to say that. It's an insurance policy, right? It's an insurance policy against future attacks. And uh, what we hit on is the definition of mission success. That, that, that's, that, that's really the, the, the point you are making, I think, which is how do we define mission success? Uh, and politicians have not been honest about what mission success is. Maybe they don't understand the problem well enough to define it for the American people. The American people, uh, you know, they're willing to listen. If we have leaders who are willing to talk to them in honest ways, and they can tell, all right? And uh, and so I don't define mission—you su- can't define mission success in this case as as beating a, a a well-defined group in a territory, right? So just kind of your t- your typical warfare where there's— There's, you know, people wearing uniforms and and such. You know, there's no head of state to to negotiate with here. This is different. Uh, This is an ideology that you're battling, and it requires presence in order to battle it. Um, And it requires building capacity amongst your partners. And mission success is actually every day that we don't have another 9-11. That's mission success. And I I think that's what politicians need to be more honest about.
1: So you've been dealing with, with President Trump, as everybody has. He's sort of become the star around which all politics apparently revolves. If you had to grade the president on his performance so far, h- how would you grade him?
0: Well, pretty. I, I I grade him pretty high as far as policymaking goes. As um, uh, you know, again, there's only a couple things I really disagree with, and that's the pullout from Syria and Afghanistan, and uh, and a lot of his trade policy. And, uh, and and not that I don't see and understand where he's trying to go with his trade policy. It just hurts my district. That 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 that's the reality. It's it's not workable for 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 my constituents. Um, but overall pretty good, you know, I don't know about a grade. I don't like grading things, uh, but I would say overall pretty good. Uh, I like how open he is to, to members of Congress. You know, he, he does listen. Uh, it's a very open white house. And I think that, I think he should, I think he should get some, uh, some accolades for that. Uh, Unfortunately, I think, uh, again, I'm still very passionate about the border, uh, issue. I think he's absolutely right on the border issue. Uh, and I think, but I do think we could have done a lot better job as a whole, a lot better job negotiating that and a lot better job messaging that. And the fight's not over, though. So we still have a chance to come back from that. So for people who are skeptical about Congress, particularly among Republicans, the
1: Republicans basically have a theme, which is when Democrats are in charge, we stop them. And then when we, we are in charge, then Republicans pass a tax cut. And that's pretty much <laughs> what we do. Uh, so w- what would you say to people who watch Republican Congress and they're constantly disappointed by you know, all the promises to defund Planned Parenthood, to end Obamacare, to secure the border. People who look at President Borders struggling with with the border now and say, where were you in 2017? Like, why wasn't this the top issue in 2017? Why are we doing this now? The Democrats have taken over over Congress. What would you say
0: to folks? Are we we getting it right when we criticize Congress or are we getting it wrong? Um, A lot of those criticisms, I I think, are correct. Yes and no. So uh, on the border deal specifically, Yes, should, we, should, we, should, we should have some self-critique there. We could have done better. I wasn't there, so, you know, not my fault. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it, was, it It always goes back to this idea of you're trying, are you trying to do a Hail Mary or are you trying to have a win? And, boy, I think every Republican would go back to those deals being made right now and, just, and, and, and absolutely make those deals that, that, were, that were going on back then. There's a lot of inside baseball there that even I don't really understand, just, again, because I wasn't there. Uh, but it's, but it's very frustrating to voters because, um, and, and, and I think here's why, because a lot of politicians, they go into office and I think they overpromise. I think they forget to inform people that you need 60 votes in the Senate for a lot of things, right? And they, and so a lot of people don't realize things like that. Uh, so they, so they go in thinking, well, you have a majority, so what's the problem? Get it done. You have a majority and, and you're all supposed to be exactly the same too. Well, first of all, not all Republicans are the same. They cater to different bases. Okay. I can be pretty conservative. I am pretty conservative. That's just how I'll vote. Uh, but I, I have to be understanding of some other of Republicans who don't have those kind of districts. And they and in the end, they're not selling out to anybody except their own constituents, which is kind of the whole point of representative democracy. So, um, you know, I, I, I want voters to be able to understand that, um, understand that I will fight for the things I said I was going to fight for. I also try not to overpromise things uh, that I just can't get done. And and again, when you campaign, it's up to you as a good politician to just be more honest with your voters about what's realistic and what's not. And they can take it again. They can take some honesty and some authenticity. It's okay. We don't have to be so cagey and and, and programmed all the time. And I I think I was rewarded for it. And so
1: we'll keep doing that. So now I have to ask you a weird personal question. So you you brought your wife along here today. And uh, how did you how did you guys meet?
0: So we met through a friend in San Diego. I had just come out there uh, uh, to start BUDS. And actually i just broken my leg my, my first time through Hell Week. And then uh, I was friends with, um, with uh, another girl who was in the Navy and she went to, um, they were both Navy brats and they went to uh, middle school together. And uh, they introduced us, so here we are. <laughs> how long did you guys date before you got married? Uh, geez, how long did we date?
1: Seven years. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, yeah. What took you so long, dude? I mean, <laughs>
0: you know, I got blown up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, that's that's Let me just about go back to that. Excuse. That's about as good an excuse yeah, yeah, as I've right, ever you know, heard. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I was like, geez, what do I say? Uh, no. So, so we got married in 2013.
1: So, so what are your future aspirations? So you, you obviously have. Raised your profile more than any other member of Republican Congress since your election. I mean, you've only been in Congress for about five minutes here. <laughs> what, are, what are your future aspirations on, on the Republican side? Uh,
0: first, we got to do right by our district. That's that's always the the very first thing um, b- before you start thinking bigger than that. Politics is often about opportunities more so than a than a very well defined pipeline upward. Uh, so. You know, uh, as you can probably imagine, as you well know, I think that the opportunities that come to you, are maybe, maybe you run for Senate one day, maybe you run for governor, maybe you stay in the House and try to go to a leadership position. Uh, well, these days, everybody runs for president. So who knows? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, for, for right now, um, I'm young. I can be patient. I, I don't I don't have to leave my constituents and and, and try to move on to something bigger Um right now. I, I want to do right by them. And there's, there's, some, there's local issues that matter to them that I, that, I, that I think we have to fight for before we start believing that we're worthy of something bigger. Uh, how have you been treated by the
1: media? After the SNL thing, obviously, there's a lot of warm media coverage. My experience with the media has been every time uh, there's a bit of warm media coverage is immediately followed by a piano being dropped from, <laughs> from a high story. <laughs> What's been your experience with the media since the uh,
0: SNL stuff? Yeah, it's not terrible, um, but it's not great either you know it depends on which parts of the media of course uh, obviously conservative media I'm still you know we're we're still friends and that's good I like to keep it that way and uh I think your more mainstream media hasn't hit me hard in any way you New know, your CNNs even your MSNBC be I mean, morning joe had me on it wasn't you know they didn't they didn't they didn't try to you know give me a right hook or anything it was it was okay um, you know, but then, but then you do something like make a joke about the Super Bowl, and, and you joke about the seventy percent tax rate. Oh boy, they will come after you. <laughs> like that was the funniest
1: thing. Yeah, that 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 was an absurd thing for people who missed it. AOC tweeted something out about well, she she she'd been suggesting a seventy percent tax rate for people making above ten million dollars, and after New England won the Super Bowl, Dan tweeted out that. The, that New England should redistribute its its points yeah, or its or, Super Bowl yeah. it so like, something should, like we
0: that. We should tax the Patriots at seventy percent to make the NFL more fair and equal. Right.
1: And then she tried to explain marginal <laughs> like, tax rates. The, the, the joke went completely over her right. head, which which seems to happen a lot. I mean, which is which is amazing for a woman as brilliant and, and well informed as, as AOC. Uh, <laughs>
0: it, was, it was such a strange thing that I, you know, of all the things that I thought would trigger the left. I mean, that one. Wow. <laughs> it was, you can't joke. Can't joke anymore. Well, the, this this is one of
1: the the things that I think has has made you popular, and I think it's one of the things that the left. Can't handle is that you do have a sense of humor. You are good natured what they yeah. actually want in Republicans is people who look mean who look nasty and who are yeah. going to get angry at
0: every single Problem here that well that well that that's a good point to to touch on actually um, They they do want us to be old white guys. That's what they want um, They they targeted our uh, our female candidates in this last election heavily, you know uh, young Kim in California Mia Love uh, was targeted heavily um, uh, Katie Arrington out in uh, South Carolina, so you know they 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 don't want us to be anything else but um, but old white guys, and that that's a problem. It's a problem for us. We need to identify that. We sh- we should we we should be more diversely because it's it's helpful to our message if we have different kinds of people messaging it, and I, and I think that's important. Um, again, you know we don't like identity politics, and ideas matter much more than that. But we're we're foolish if we think that it's not beneficial to have more people on our side, more different types of people—feel, male, female, um, you know, different races, all of it. We we have to, and I, I think you know, and I think that'd be to our benefit. But uh, Democrats certainly don't want that. They don't want us to be funny. They don't want us to be good people, um, and uh, they'll 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 hit you in, in very car- in interesting ways, as I've noticed, and uh, you know, some of the local media has done similar uh, similar ways. They, I don't call it fake news, but I do call it deliberately misleading news where they're reporting facts, but it's facts that are very clearly meant to mislead the public, um, in a certain direction. And, uh, and th- that's just unfortunate. And, um, y- you bring this up to a lot of journalists and they'll be so indignant about it. Like, how could you possibly say that? How you, th- we are the press as if the thing, they put themselves on this pedestal that is really it's really unbelievable, and I, and I don't quite understand. I don't know. I mean, you're part of the press, maybe. It's my <laughs> fault. <Yeah. laughs> so in, in a second, I want to ask you
1: one final question. I want to ask you about what you think is the biggest problem facing America that's solvable. Some of these things may be intractable. What do you think is the biggest solvable problem facing the country? I'm going to ask that question to Representative Dan Crenshaw. But to hear his answer, you actually have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. So subscribe, head on over to dailywire.com. Click subscribe. You can hear the end of our conversation over there. Congressman Crenshaw, thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for all you're doing, and thanks for all you have done. Really appreciate it. It's
0: awesome to be here, Ben. I'm a big fan, so this was a pretty cool honor. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks.
1: The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Mathis Glover. Edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Dylan Case. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First,